Good morning, everybody. Good morning. A quick uh, business update. If you were here last week, you know that we took, um, uh, we did a budget presentation and took a vote. So the update on that is the budget was approved unanimously, which is awesome and incredible, which means sort of we're all on the same page. There's a unity of vision moving forward. So uh, onward and upward. Let's be about our father's business. There's the update. Now let's get into Matthew. Okay, so if you're just joining us, we've been going through the book of Matthew, which is a long book. It's a biography of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and we're in a section where Jesus has begun to teach in parallels. And I want to briefly, before we get started today, just review a basic definition of parable from last week so we can all be on the same page. Oftentimes, parables are called uh, simple stories or allegories, metaphors, analogies. There's all kinds of different ways to describe them, but what I found is probably uh, most effective in communicating what they're doing is to break down the actual Greek word of parable. It's parabole, and if, if you break it in half, you get two words, para and bole. And para in Greek means to be alongside of something, to be around it, or to, with, to be with something. And then the, the balo part of it means to throw or to cast. So essentially, a parable is throwing something alongside of something else. And so Jesus has a set of truths that he's teaching, but rather than speak of them directly, it's as if he's throwing something alongside of them. Something is running parallel with them. So in understanding the story, you're not just supposed to get the story, you're supposed to see the truths that are running parallel with it. Now oftentimes parables are incredibly simple and on the nose, they're really easy to understand. And then other times they're, they're really difficult. I mean, you gotta dig deep and dig deep, 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 and even then you don't reach the bottom of the well, like so much of the Bible. It's just like inexhaustible. Uh, today, there's gonna be some easy ones and, and maybe a more difficult one. We're gonna cover three parallels, three parallels, three parables, and in that, Jesus presents them sort of with a unique structure. So before we get started, I wanna review sort of the landscape, the direction of Jesus' presentation of these three parables. What he's gonna do is he's gonna give us one parable, it's a longer one, and then a second parable, which is really short, and a third parable, which is even shorter. Then after that, Matthew is going to speak, of how, speak about how Jesus is actually fulfilling prophecy by speaking in parables, and then he's going to return to Jesus explaining parable number one. So you kind of have to realize that, otherwise it's easy to get lost. So three parables in a row, a prophecy fulfillment, and then a return to the first par- parable, with an explanation. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. This type of thing was actually quite common. There was actually Roman laws on the books that you couldn't sow other seeds, specifically weeds, in your neighbor's field. It was a way to just completely destroy his crop. Now, Jesus is using the word tear. We just think of the word weed for this. Specifically, we're talking about a weed called the Darnell weed, and we know that that then and now grows in wheat fields in the region that Jesus is speaking this in, and it looks exactly like wheat. 
up until its final stages. So to tell the difference between the wheat and this Darnell weed, this tear, is very difficult until you get to the very end. For someone to do something like this would be incredibly damaging. It's not just like, oh, this is, now you gotta pull up some weeds. Like, you know, if you don't like your neighbor, you throw a bunch of weeds and you can say, ha, 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 now you have another Saturday ruined. It's, it's like way worse than that. People relied on the crop, the family, the community. This would bring devastation upon the family and the community if they're reliant on this food, which most likely they were. This is like threatening hunger, possibly starvation, possibly death. So Jesus gives us this picture of wheat growing up and someone sowing bad seed, these Darnell weeds. And then the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in the field? How then does it have these weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So the farmer says, you can't just go and pull out all of these tares, these darnel weeds, because in doing so, the roots have grown together and you're actually going to damage the wheat. So let them grow together for the time, and then when the harvest comes, we'll separate it then. Now return to our definition of, of parable. A parable is a story that's running alongside something else. So there is some truth that Jesus is communicating, some big, like epic next level truth, but he's not directly speaking of it, he's telling you a story alongside of it. And you're supposed to sort of wrestle with it and tease it out and kind of break down the riddle, if you will. Now Jesus is gonna to return to this and actually give you a, a more fuller explanation, but for now you're just like kind of left going, what exactly is going on? So that's parable number one, parable number two. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and has become a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nest in its branches. So tiny mustard seed grows into a big tree. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Now, an important note, um, it's kind of ridiculous that we even have to note this, but um, oftentimes you might hear people, especially someone who's, who's antagonistic towards the scriptures, say, this is another example of the Bible containing an error or Jesus misspeaking, which shows that he's, he's not God and the Bible is filled with errors because they'll say, uh, maybe back then they thought the mustard seed was the smallest seed, but now, you know, we're so smart, um, we've discovered that there's other seeds technically smaller than the mustard seed. So Jesus is mistaken in saying the mustard seed is the smallest seed. And it's, this is just, it's nonsensical because to speak like this is using proverbial language about a very small seed. This is everyday language. Human beings talk like this. Like you can't escape this type of language, metaphor, and analogy. If Jesus were to say, and then we saw the sun rise, you could technically say, well, actually, the sun doesn't rise. Or he said, and then this, this man fell in love. And it's like, oh, did he really fall, Jesus? Did he fall in love? This is just how language works. And so Jesus is taking up a proverbial saying about mustard seeds being really small 
and then saying, the kingdom of God is like that. It starts off like nothing, but it will grow to a massive tree. And even the birds will come and nest in it. Now, at the time, this would sound absolutely ridiculous. I mean, think about this. Jesus is gaining some popularity right now in northern Galilee, a tiny region in a tiny region called Israel. There, he, he has no, like, wealth or resources. He doesn't have an army. Nevertheless, the claim of Jesus in this passage is that his kingdom will grow to be the largest kingdom on earth. Without wealth, without resources, without army, he's just going to say, no, it's going to grow. It's going to start off real small. And think about how ridiculous this would sound leading up to the crucifixion. The crowds, the small crowds that were supporting him, they're gone. Even the disciples flee, right? Everyone's gone. There's a few people there at the crucifixion. It's like, oh, this is really going to turn into the greatest kingdom. And think about the first followers of Jesus on Pentecost, the men and women who would first proclaim the gospel. They're going around the empire and saying that a first century Jewish man named Jesus of Nazareth, who died the criminal's death by hanging on a Roman cross, was killed and has come back to life and is now the world's one true king. He's the one, he's the one world's rightful odor, or owner. Like, think about that. That's a ridiculous claim. But what has happened historically? Like, what actually took place? It's a tiny, tiny mustard seed that has grown and grown and grown. And right now, 2,000 years later, there are people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, people from every socioeconomic background, people from every walk of life who say that Jesus is their Lord. And at this very moment, there are more people who are living who will lay down their life for this one man than any other human figure in history. That's not debatable. You don't even have to like that. That is a fact. There are more than 2.4 billion people who claim allegiance to Christ and his kingdom. And every year, millions of people convert to Jesus. That's, more, that's on top of people who are being raised in Christian families. Millions. So that means every minute of every hour, of every day, of every month, of every year, there is someone repenting and putting their faith in Jesus. Right now, as we sit in this building, there is someone putting their trust in Jesus for the first time. And that's a reason to celebrate. Because if the angels in heaven celebrate one person coming to repentance, that means there's a constant celebration now. We have reached the point in history where every minute there is someone putting their faith in Jesus. We've reached a point in human history where there is always a celebration for the lost sheep coming home. And that's really good news. And it would have seemed like the most ridiculous thing when Jesus spoke this. Nevertheless, small seed, giant tree. That's how the kingdom of God works. And the third parable, it's much like the second, but from a different angle. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Okay, so something we may or may not be familiar with, there's unleavened bread and then there's leavened bread. And so if you're gonna make bread and you want it to rise, you put a leavening agent into it. And at this time, something like yeast would have been put into it and over time, the bread begins to rise. Also, in addition to that, the bread is, is changing. Like, 
as the bread rises and the gases are expelled, like there's a more fluffier kind of texture that people like. It's not like flat and hard. It makes a better bread that's risen. So Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God is like that. It's not only growing, but it's, it's changing. The kingdom of God is, is an agent that is changing the whole of the bread. So in one sense, it's like a seed to a tree that it grows really big, but the kingdom of heaven is actually changing the fundamental nature of the world. And again, that might have sound ridiculous 2,000 years ago, but that is what has happened historically. The world's been changed. The world has been drastically, like climactically changed. All around the world right now, you will find Christians serving and helping and caring for the last, the lost, and the least of them. There are more orphanages built in the name of Jesus than any other human being ever. There are more hospitals serving and caring for people in the name of Jesus than any other figure. You will find resource centers, pregnancy centers, organizations dedicated to helping those in need who lack food, whatever it may be, wherever you go on God's green earth, you are gonna find Christians serving. It's like a seed that's grown. It's like bread that's growing and it's changing, the nature of it's changing. Parable one, parable two, parable three. Now let's remember the structure. We were gonna get the first three and now Matthew, the writer of this biography, is gonna insert a prophecy that's being fulfilled by Jesus speaking in parables and then we're gonna return to the explanation of parable number one. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. All right, if you were here last week, we talked about how when the scriptures quote other scriptures, you're not just meant to read the verse that it's quoting. So in this, you could see the quote that's been separated, the bottom three lines. That is not the only thing you're supposed to have in mind when Matthew quotes this. You're supposed to have the whole of that psalm in your mind. This is Psalm 78, and it's a very long psalm, it's long. And so your mind is meant to go back and see what's being said there and then map it upon the current situation. Because in one sense, it's kind of weird. Matthew goes, oh yeah, Jesus speaks in parables. So did that guy did in Psalm 82. Remember when he said, I will open my mouth in parables? Prophecy fulfilled. And you're kind of like, I don't really see the point, but if you go back and you read Psalm 78, it's a long passage about the back and forth relationship of Israel with God. Israel worships God, they rebel, uh, God brings in justice, God disciplines them, they rebel, God is merciful, Israel receives the, the, the blessing and then they turn away again and God again is once again merciful and kind and gracious and he's disciplining and rebuking and gathering and then it ends by telling sort of a brief history of Israel's back and forth relationship by God saying, Israel has been rebellious, nevertheless I have chosen David, he is my servant. And so you almost have this picture of God's sovereign hand working over his people, the people of Israel throughout history and in the midst of sin and rebellion, nevertheless God's purposes will be accomplished. Now keep that in mind because that's what you're supposed to take into Jesus' interpretation of parable number one. Then he left the crowds. At that point, he was speaking to the group. 
And he went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Which is probably sort of your response, because parable two and three were sort of easy to understand, right? Like, you got those, like, kind of straightforward. But parable one, you're, you're probably like the disciples. Like, give us, give us a clue. Give us a little clue, a little bit of a help here. He answered, Jesus answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Okay, this this parable is unique in that like almost every element has a direct correspondence. The weeds are this, the wheat is this, the bad sower is this person, and the harvest is this later event. Jesus is sort of giving you a snapshot of all of history from his ministry till the last day. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So that's the explanation. Now, go back to what we talked about last week, if you were here, and if not, I'll give you a brief summary. If you remember, there was another parable about a sower and how seeds fall into four different types of soil. And we talked about how there's a temptation to kind of immediately have the individualist lens on your your eyes and say, okay, where am I in this parable? And so what type of soil I am? There's four types of soil. I want to... I don't want to be one of these bad soils. I want to be a good soil that bears good fruit. So if I'm one of these bad soils, let me identify it and help myself um, not be bad soil. But that's, the, the nature of the parable doesn't work that way. Like in the parable, if you are bad soil, you can't become soil that cultivates itself. Like you can't do that. Now, it's not a bad idea to say, hey, if I'm not producing fruit, then what do I need to do in my life to to better serve the Lord? That's fine and well, good. Have those discussions. We need those. But the story, the parable, isn't trying to get you to say, how can I be better soil? It's describing the nature of reality. It's saying that God's truth goes out into the world And as God's truth goes into the world, it will fall on different types of hearts and different types of hearts will receive it differently. Likewise, today, Jesus is describing the nature of reality. He's not telling you, like, make sure you're not a weed um, because if you're a weed, you need to figure out how to change yourself into some wheat. That's not what's occurring. Now, obviously in scripture, if you're not following the Lord, there's a road to repentance and faith in Jesus where God will forgive you, obviously. But the story isn't trying to make you think you're a weed and how do you turn yourself to wheat? It's just describing the way things operate. This is the nature of reality. God creates the world and it's good. But then there is an intrusion, a rebellion. And there's now evil in the world and there's brokenness. And Jesus is saying there's this this 
person who has come in and spread out these darnel weeds. And it's overtaken the crop. And so now you have good and bad. You have wheat and weeds growing together. And he says, you might ask, like some of his servants, well, let's just go take out the weeds. And Jesus says, no, 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 you can't do that. If you take out the weeds, you're likely going to damage the wheat. Therefore, let them grow together until the fullness of time and on the last day will separate. Jesus is ultimately talking about the problem of evil. Now remember the prophecy that was quoted a while ago from Psalms? He says, I will reveal to you knowledge that was kept secret before the the foundations of the world. That's how deep we're going. Jesus is, is giving us a story that addresses the problem of evil. Because when the disciples looked around, they see good things and bad things, and they're going, why is there all this suffering if God is good, and why isn't he acting now? Now, one thing you have to understand is that modern people approach the problem of evil differently than many ancient people did. So most modern people will say something along the lines of, if a good God exists, um, how could there be so much evil in the world. If a good God exists, why is there there evil and suffering? Most ancient people presuppose that there was evil in the world because there was a host of evil beings. And more importantly, modern people assume that if there is a God, then this God ought to be good. But an ancient person might say, why do you think God ought to be good? Their presupposition was that there are gods and goddesses, and they're assumed to be bad. They're not good. Like, why think that there's this God up there who actually cares and loves you and wants to do good? They're like, there's tons of gods, and and they're not good people. In fact, they're more morally depraved than human beings are. So I'll give you a few examples, some popular ones that you'll recognize. This is Zeus, god of the sky, right? So if you traveled 2,000 years ago and went to Israel and marched your way to Rome, you would be introduced to a ton of gods and goddesses. And, and sometimes they act good, but man, most of the time, they're worse than you. You know? Zeus, god of the sky. He's not a faithful guy to his wives, to his partners, to his people. He's a horrible. He takes multiple wives, multiple women, both from Mount Olympus in sort of the realm of the gods, and then human women. And he's horrible to them. He goes from one to another. He has this massive sexual appetite. There's one story where another god named Prometheus takes fire from the heavens in order to bless human beings. And Zeus was against it. So Zeus creates a punishment where Prometheus is born anew every single day only to have an eagle, which is a symbol of Zeus, tear out his stomach and eat his liver. And that repeats every day. That's Zeus, god of the sky. Let's go to the opposite end. We'll go to the underworld. This is Hades with his three-headed dog, Cerberus. They call that dog the hound of hell, the hound of Hades, because Hades was the god of the underworld, and the dog made, made sure that anyone who entered into death could not escape death. You're dead, now you're at the place of the dead, no one's gonna get out of here. Hades kidnapped uh, another goddess named Persophanes and forced her into marriage. 
It's not a good dude. Like no one's going, oh, there's so much evil in the world. Does that challenge the goodness of Hades? They assume these dudes were bad. Let's be fair, it's not just the dudes. It's the girls. This is Hera, bitter, jealous. She was married to to Zeus and she was... um, taken over by bitterness and jealousy because Zeus would go out and and be unfaithful to her. Um, But the horrible thing is that she would take out that anger upon the women and their children. So she would try to kill children in her jealousy and her rage. I mean, this is next level. There's one account that says one of her own children was born in her eyes ugly and she threw him off Mount Olympus as a baby. So, People back then were not wrestling with the question in necessarily the same manner that we wrestle with. So how is Jesus addressing the problem of evil? Well, first thing you have to understand is that in the midst of all of those belief systems, the Jewish people were distinct and unique. In one way, they were parallel, but in another way, completely distinct. They were the same in that they believed the world was filled with spiritual beings who were often evil and hated humanity. So they presupposed that as well. But what was different is they believed that there was one all-powerful, omnipotent, infinite God who was good and good all of the time. So for the first Christians and for the Jewish people, the question was not, is God good? They said, of course God is good. The question was, how long, O Lord, until you act? Evil in the world did not negate the idea of a good God. It necessitated, however, that this good God would act one day decisively, climactically, and defeat evil once and for all. So the question for them was, how long, O Lord, are you letting your people suffer? Now, if you've been a Christian a long time and you've read the Bible a lot, how often have you read, especially in the Psalms, someone crying out, how long, O Lord? How long? How long must we wait? Your people suffer day and night. I suffer day and night. My enemies surround me. How long, O Lord, until you finally act? We know that you are good and good all of the time. Evil doesn't negate the fact of your existence, but it at least says you have to come back and do something about it. And so Jesus says, God's kingdom is coming. In fact, it's here right now. Which would do what to the audience? The crowds and likely the disciples are going, it's about to go down. God's kingdom is here. Lord, let us sit at your right hand. You're coming in your glory. It's all, the bad guys are about to be destroyed. Evil's about to be eradicated. It's gonna go down. The kingdom of God is here. Right? If this is built into your theological system and now there's a guy who's doing miracles, giving sight to the blind, forgiving sins, going around like a living, walking, breathing temple embodying the very presence of God, you're going, dude, it's all happening. It's like many people on the last day of 1999 with Y2K the next day. It's gonna go down. It's happening right now. And so there's this expectation, God is going to act. How long, O Lord, today's the day. And Jesus says, not so fast. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed 
It's going to start out small, and it's going to take a long time. But have faith. It will go into a tree. It will grow into the greatest of all trees. But it's going to take time. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a woman putting the leavening agent in bread. You're not just going to see it rise instantly. It's going to take time. Slowly but surely, it's growing and it is changing the nature of the bread. So Jesus says, hold on, hold on, not yet. Which then gives us another question. Why not now? Why wait? Why extend this? Let's do the separating. Let's separate the wheat from the weeds, the Darnell weeds. Let's get it over with because, Lord, I'm kind of tired of this. How long? Right? Some of you have that on days. It's like enough. Enough is enough. Let's get this over with. Well, one of the first followers of Jesus who was there to hear this parable by the name of Peter later in his life would give us the answer to this. He would tell us, what is God waiting for? Why does it take so long? Listen to the words of Peter. 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. How long, O Lord? Till all who will ultimately come to repentance do indeed come to repentance. In other words, God has not initiated the harvest and started his separation of wheat from weeds because he is gracious. His patience is enduring human suffering in order that all people who will ultimately come to him will have the opportunity to hear the gospel and come to him. In other words, the harvest will come when all those who will reach repentance repent. God is enduring with patience and being gracious to rebellious humanity and letting evil have a moment so that there is opportunity for the world to repent. And he does this not because he's not good or he doesn't care or he's not bothered by human evil and rebellion. He patiently waits. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient towards Notice who he said, towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why? Because if God just pulled up everything in one fell instance, many of you would have been weeds. But he's gracious and patient so that all who would come to repentance do indeed come to repentance. Now you might say, well, of course God's gonna do that because he loves people, he loves humanity, uh, he's such a good God. And it's like, you take for granted all of this Christian influence on your understanding of God. Remember, you don't just get to presuppose that if there is a God, he would be good and he would be so good, he would be good all of the time. Like, think about that for a moment. Our claim is that there is an infinite being of infinite power who is good and good all of the time and good towards his people. That is not a presupposition that should be just taken for granted because remember where we were. Most ancient cultures, they didn't think that. They said, look, the gods have to be bad. You have Zeus and his anger and his rage with his thunderbolt in hand ready to punish Prometheus again and again and again. 
You have Hades and the realm of the dead and his evil dog Cerberus making sure no one escapes from the place of the dead. You have Hera taken over by bitterness and jealousy to the point that she would even disregard her own child. Now with that as a backdrop, think for a moment how good it must have sounded. Think about this, how good it must have sounded to ancient ears to hear a story about the one good God who left heaven to come to earth to die the death that you deserve in order that he might give you entrance into his family. Think about that for a moment. That news would sound so good, it might be too good to be true. Nevertheless, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Herod comes with his, Zeus comes with his thunderbolt, Hades comes with the power of death, Hera with her bitterness and jealousy and rage. But Christ comes bearing a cross to save sinners like you and like me. And he endures human suffering and he himself endures suffering on a cross in order that all might have the opportunity to become children of God. This would have been really good news. How long, O oh Lord, how long must we wait? As long as it takes so that my children come home. He is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowlessness. That's not how this God operates. And so, last week there was a parable of the sower. And the idea behind that was the harvest is certain and sure. It's certain and sure, meaning there will be fruit. There will be fruit in God's kingdom. This week, we get another certainty that God's judgment and justice will come. It may be slow to our you know, consideration, but it is sure. And one day, the Son of Man will come and there will be a harvest. The King of Kings, King of Kings will come riding in on a white horse to judge the righteous and the wicked. He'll bring his recompense with him. And so we endure in the present patiently, knowing that God's sovereign purposes, just like Psalm 78, are working behind the scenes even if we don't see them. The kingdom of God is like a seed growing into a giant tree. It's like a leavening agent put into bread. And God is like the sower who planted good seed, but evil crept in. And now he's waiting because if he brings the judgment immediately, a lot of his children are gonna be on the out. So he waits patiently. And then on the final day, judgment, justice, salvation for his people. Remember, Matthew said we're talking about things that have been hidden before the foundations of the world. Which means we have to learn to develop a future-minded perspective. And what I mean by that is um, it's not to say that everything's gonna end up all right, so everyone just be happy, it's all good. Because remember, the whole point of the parable is that there's lawlessness and evil and suffering. But in the midst of that, you have a future-minded perspective that says, I still have reason to hope and to have joy and to rejoice. So the goodness of the end of the story doesn't negate human suffering, but it at least tells you to fix your eyes on something down the road. Jesus himself actually does this in his ministry. This is a fascinating verse from Hebrews. It says this, therefore, since we, 
believers are surrounded by, by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You run with endurance the race set before you, and we do so looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now get this, this is incredible. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endures the cross for the joy set before him. Think about that. It's not saying, oh, Jesus was so faithful, which he was, that even the cross looked like a happy thing because he knew what would happen on the other side. He endures the cross, despising the shame. Why? Because there was a joy set before him. As a believer, you endure present suffering knowing you have a present joy because of the cross, but also there is an ultimate joy set before you. Christians historically have called this the blessed hope, the return of the Son of Man, the return of the Son of God. When judgment and justice are finally done, well, you will no longer have to say, how long, O Lord? Because the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of God, and God is all in all. And so Christians in the present have to learn to develop this type of understanding. We are in the period where the wheat and the tares are growing up together. And you keep having endurance and going through it, knowing that there is coming a day where God rights the wrongs of this world. Well, you will not have to say, how long, O Lord? And so when you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, you understand that you have such good news that however bad the news is, you still got something good to talk about. And right now, as we speak, someone's becoming a Christian. And if heaven's celebrating, earth ought to celebrate. His kingdom is like a seed, growing slowly but surely, like the leavening agent put in bread, slowly but surely. God's sovereign purposes are being accomplished. They are hidden mysteriously in the bread, but make no mistake about it, they're working. And so, no matter how bad the news is, you still have good news. Or another way to say it is, the news you have is better than the worst that's on the news. That doesn't negate human suffering or whatever trials or tribulations you're going through, but it says, for the joy set before us, we can endure. There will come a day when there's no more, how long, O Lord? but thanks and praise be to Christ who is patient in order that all might come to repentance. And he's been patient and gracious with you and all of us. Let's stand as we take communion. Ask yourself before we take this, how future-minded are you Are you letting the bad news outweigh the good news? Do you have this future-minded perspective? The reason why we're able to have a hope in the future is because something was accomplished in the past. Jesus, the son of man, the good shepherd, the sower, lays down his life. He is not like Zeus, Hades, or Hera, or any of the other gods. He is the one who comes to bear his cross to save sinners like us. So on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Take it and remember.
Likewise, Jesus takes the cup and he says this is the the blood of the new covenant. Paul the apostle says we take this and we proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. And so Lord, until you come and bring about your harvest, we will proclaim your death and your resurrection. Let's take. Father, as we close in worship, may we sing and honor your son Jesus for his work, his accomplishment. May it instill in us hope and trust in your sovereign hand and your working throughout human history. May we be faithful as you've been faithful and may we be a good news people. May we be a celebratory people for we always have reason to celebrate every minute of every hour of every day there is reason to be thankful and reason to celebrate. We give you thanks today, Father, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.